All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us online as well. If you're here in person, it'll be up on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be up on your screen at home. This is God's word, Acts 1, 3 through 8. To them, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And then Acts 2.47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Let's pray. Father, we worship you and we glorify your name and we thank you so much for your presence that is always with your church. Thank you for that time of worship. We pray and ask that you were blessed by that time. Uh, sometimes we forget that when we gather like this, that one thing, one purpose we have is to actually bless your heart. So Lord God, we want to bless your heart. We want you to be pleased with this gathering. We ask that you would open up this word now at this time and that you would speak to us. Please give us faith to receive and believe in your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the different marks of a true church, and why are we looking at that? Because this year, we are called to be the church, amen? And if we're going to be the church, we have to know what the church is. And so, what is a true church? How do you distinguish a true church from a false church? I'm talking about if right now, if you're looking for a new church, maybe you're here for the first time looking for a church while you're here, and if you're visiting us, what are you looking for? So I'm just making it really real, hopefully. But what marks, what characteristics do you look for when you go looking for a church? Do you look for friendly people? Do you look for short sermons? You're not going to get it here. But what, what do you look for? A nice building? But what marks would you look for if you're looking for a church? Well, historically, there are a lot of different ways that people have tried to define a true church. They have defined it through preaching of the gospel, performing the sacraments like baptism, communion. Other people have pointed out making disciples is a mark of a true church. So all those things are very important. I believe in all of those things. True churches do all of those things. But I believe there's a different way to categorize those same marks. So I'm not giving you any different kinds of marks, but I think you can categorize them a little differently. But for the last few weeks, we've looked at what? Devotion to Christ and his word. Devotion to one another, loving one another, and then finally devotion to being witnesses to the lost. And all those other marks I mentioned earlier, I think they could fit into all of these. And why would we categorize the marks of a true church like this? Well, when I look at the New Testament, I believe the New Testament does. These three marks come up repeatedly in the New Testament. So we looked at this already, but Jesus, for example, commanded his disciples to do these three things in John 15. A few chapters later, Jesus prayed for these three things in John 17. And then when we turn to the book of Acts, we see the early church doing these three things in our passage in Acts 2. Later, we see Paul. He's writing all these letters now to the churches that are forming everywhere, and he's encouraging them to do what? The same three things. 
For example, look at Romans 12. You read through that chapter, you'll see all three of those things. So I love how straightforward the Bible is. But these are the marks of a true church. Again, if you're looking for a church right now, maybe you're visiting us for the first time. Please, don't look at the way I'm dressed. Don't look at how long the sermons are. Don't look at how good the band is. Maybe those things matter. But look for these three things. Devotion to Christ and his word. Devotion to one another. Do people love one another here? Jesus said, you will know that you are my disciples by your love. And then finally, devotion to being witnesses to the lost. Do we care about sharing the gospel to the lost? So it's that simple, brothers and sisters. If we're going to be the churches here, we have to have these same three marks. So for the last few weeks, we've looked at the first two. I'm not going to review all that. You can find it online. And today, what I want to look at is the last one. And we're going to have to look at it for the next two weeks. But looking at devotion to being witnesses to the lost. Witnesses to the lost. You know, I don't know if you guys have been watching the Olympics, but my family, we've been having a really good time uh, watching the Winter Olympics this year. It's kind of the first time we've been doing that. And I know it's filled with a lot of controversy, so I'm not here to promote all that. But we've been having a good time watching it. And I remember just the other day, I was kind of reading up on some of the results, and I read this one quote by one of the athletes. She's only 18 years old. She won a gold medal. And she was basically asked, like, what's the most important thing to you as an an Olympian, a gold medalist? And this is what she said. She told the media, and I'm paraphrasing, she said, the most important thing to me in my life is to do what I'm passionate about and to make a difference in the world. And I said, of course, right? Of course. Now, when she said that, of course, she was very sincere. I believed her. But what she said is very, very common. You hear that all the time. I can imagine hearing that in every job interview, right? Every beauty pageant contestant says the same thing. I'm here to make a difference in the world. But they're all about that. Pretty much anyone and everyone you could think of wants to do what they're passionate about and make a difference in the world. And I'm and I'm here to ask why, right? Why? Well, the reason why I believe is because that's a remnant of God's original design. But I believe that's how God created us. Kind of like an echo of a sound that's no longer here. Or maybe the shadow of an object that's no longer in sight. But human beings no longer know God or know his purpose for their lives. But they still kind of have this echo, this shadow in their hearts. They have these desires of how God designed them to be. But this is how God designed us. But the Bible says God created us to be his representatives on the earth to do something that is beyond our own lives, to be instruments of him here upon this earth. But in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and do what? Multiply, go out and subdue the earth. So this was something far beyond their own lives. In other words, God was telling them, be my representatives, right? Be my instruments on the earth. Later, Paul says something very similar, but he said in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why am I mentioning all this? Well, now when you get to the third mark of a true church, being devoted to being witnesses of Christ, that is more than a duty that's been laid on the church. But this is at the very heart of why we're here. This is the very reason why God created you, created me. We have been created to do these things. You know, last week I talked about the second mark of a church. If you guys were here, you remember. But I said during that message, you're not going to make it in life if you don't have community. 
That's just a fact. You will not make it in life without community. And that's because you were never created to be alone. You were never meant to live life all alone, to be drawn just into yourselves. Because if you do that, what will happen? You're going to shrivel up. Your soul and your heart will just shrivel up. You know, back in 2011, I remember the UN came out and made this statement, but they call solitary confinement a form of torture. And I think they're just stating the obvious. But if you isolate somebody and put them all alone and put them there for a year, two years, or years, that person will suffer terribly. And not only that, it's going to destroy their soul. But we were never created to be all alone, cut off from all human connection. Well, now today, as we're talking about our purpose, the purpose God has given to the church is the same. But we were never meant to live life purely for ourselves. You know, a lot of us, we're living lives totally focused on, okay, I got to get my career going. I got to get my bank account built up, my career, my bank account, my stuff, my comforts. And so we care about these things. But over time, if that is our primary concern, if that is what is consuming us, then the same way as a person who is cut off from community shrivels up, we will also shrivel up. If we're focused only on ourselves, okay, that kind of a life become shriveled up and hollowed out. You know, a few uh, years ago, I remember there were a string of celebrities and the news came out that they took their lives. And whenever we hear something like that, it's very unexpected, but it's not surprising, right? It's never surprising to see people who have it all ending it all. And the reason why is because even with everything that the world can offer, if that's what you live for, if that's all you have, then your soul doesn't have enough. It's never enough. So we were created to be a part of something much bigger than ourselves. So kind of like that Olympic athlete, who I don't think was a believer or is a believer, she was just saying something that she she just felt. This just felt real to her. I just want to make a difference in the world. I believe she was being sincere. And even though it probably had nothing to do with God, that is an echo in all of our hearts. Okay, That's something that we all desire deep down, and that desire comes from God. So there is nothing more life-giving and rewarding than to give your life to God's bigger purposes. Okay, this is what we're talking about. I liked what Francis Xavier said. He was a missionary in the 1500s, but I believe he understood this. But he said to his students, give up your small ambitions and preach the gospel. Whatever you're going after, just forget about that. Give that up and preach the gospel. You know, I was so encouraged to hear these testimonies coming out of our sending church, um, the garden in L.A., but that's the church that sent me out and we started this church. But I remember hearing just over the years all these people in that church, well, not all, but several, who had successful careers and they were living very comfortable lives. And then one by one, these people decided, because they were touched by God, they started believing in what God was doing in the earth. And they said, you know what? I'm going to give it up. And they gave up their fruitful careers and they moved to very difficult places around the world. I remember in particular this one uh, testimony of a dentist very successful here in the U.S., but he started this ministry in Rwanda. And right now, I actually checked the website uh, last night to see what he was up to, and they are starting up all these different dental offices in Rwanda. They're training up Christian dentists in that country. So he's doing a great work there. So I'm so encouraged whenever I hear things like that. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way to be a faithful Christian. I'm not saying every Christian is called to do that. But that heart, right, that perspective, that desire, every Christian should have that. 
So if you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to make your life count, stop thinking about yourself and just about what you can get and what you can do in this life. Again, it's clear where that, where that's going to take you. But if you want to make your life count, there's nothing more significant, nothing more God glorifying than be his witness. Preach the gospel. Start sharing it to everybody you know. Be about that. No matter what else you do, be about that. So now when you look at the early church, from the moment they were birthed, that's all they were about, in addition to being devoted to Christ and devoted to one another. But they were about being witnesses to a lost world. Look at Acts 2.47. It says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know, it's really interesting, but when you look at the verses right before that, it doesn't say that they were sharing the gospel. It never says that. But clearly, that's what they were doing. They were sharing and preaching the gospel. You can just assume that. You know, in verse 46, it said that they were attending the temple together day by day. Well, it's very likely that they were going to the temple. Why? Not only to worship together, but to share the gospel. That's where all their other Jewish friends were. That's where they were going to meet a lot of people. You know, it would have been very dangerous for them to be there out in public. I mean, not long ago, Jesus was public enemy number one, and now they're his followers, and they're in public, that would have been very dangerous. And yet, they were in the temple day by day. Why? I believe to share the gospel. They gather there, they worship there, in order to preach the gospel, to see more people hear the gospel. So today, with the time we have left, what I want to look at is, how was the early church these effective witnesses? How how are they so effective in spreading the gospel? And instead of looking at their technique, what I want to look at is what they had that enabled them to share the gospel. I want to look at the two necessary ingredients that they had to be witnesses. And I think too many pastors, and I'm included in this, but a lot of pastors, they skip over the key things that the church had in order to just look at what they did. But I want to go back and look at what they had. See, if you skip what they had, and jump straight to what they did, it's never going to work, right? It's never going to produce the same fruit. So we need to first look at what did they have? Well, in order to be powerful witnesses, I believe they had these two key things, the two key ingredients. They had conviction in the gospel, and then number two, they had a baptism in the spirit. These are the two things they had. Conviction in the gospel and baptism in the spirit. Here's another way to say it. They had objective truth, and they had subjective power. These are the two key things they had. Before we can even jump into, like, what did they do, right? Like, how, how did they do it? We want to do the same things. We got to look at what they had. But they had this objective truth, this conviction in the gospel, and they had this subjective power, the baptism of the Spirit. And if the church is going to make the same impact, we need to have the same two things. If you only have one or the other, it's not going to work. So, for example, if you only had objective truth but no subjective power, you know what happens? You dry up. This is what you call dead orthodoxy. But if you have subjective power but no objective truth, you're going to blow up. I've heard somebody else say this. But you're going to blow up. You call this heterodoxy, more commonly known as heresy. You're going to be heretical. But if you have both... If you have objective truth and subjective power, what happens? You're going to raise up a mighty witness for Jesus Christ. Listen to theologian John Mackey. 
But he said, first the enlightened mind, then the burning heart. First a revival of theological insights, and then the revival we all need. You get that? You need both. And too many churches just get completely drawn into just one or the other, and then they fail. They fail to be a mighty witness. So you need both of these things. You need objective truth. You need conviction in the gospel, and you need subjective power. You need the baptism and the fulfilling of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at that first one today, but you need both. So first, the conviction in the gospel. Okay, the early church was mightily convicted in the gospel. Look at verse 3, chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 1. But it says, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Okay, that's amazing to me that Jesus, okay, picture this, after he died on the cross, he rose again. This miraculous resurrection appeared to his disciples. And that should have been enough. And now he was ready to go to heaven. But before that, he decided, I'm going to stay 40 more days with my disciples. And what did he do during those days? He taught them. It says here, he showed them convincing proofs of his resurrection. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. And so he felt like, you know what? Even after all of this, my death and resurrection, they still need more teaching. They need more conviction in the truth of the gospel. And so he showed them proofs of his resurrection. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And apparently, even after 40 days, they still didn't get it. Because after 40 days, it says what? In verse 6, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I like what John Stott said about this verse. But he said every part of that question was wrong. They were wrong. So what did he mean? The verb restore shows that they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom. That was wrong. The noun Israel shows that they were expecting a national kingdom. That was wrong. The adverbial clause at this time shows that they were expecting his immediate establishment. That was wrong too. Every part of that question was wrong. And so after 40 days of hearing Jesus teaching them, they still didn't get it. They weren't just a little wrong. They were completely, totally, utterly wrong. And yet Jesus being the best teacher who ever lived, being God himself, totally in control, he eventually got through, right? They eventually got it. And how do we know that? Well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up, gave the most amazing sermon, and we know that they got it. Okay, Peter got the gospel. They all got it. So what, what does all of this mean? It means, again, we just skip all of this. We go to, oh, yeah, what did they do? But we need to first look at what did they have? They had a conviction. They had no doubt in the truth of the gospel. This is what made them effective witnesses. So if you look in scripture, a recovery of God's word, we can't skip this, but a recovery of God's word is always the prerequisite to revival, to being powerful witnesses in our community, in our city, to seeing many people coming to faith. You have to recover the truth of the gospel. This is what happened in King Josiah's revival. This is in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 22. We don't have time to read that together. But if you look at that story, the nation of Israel was dead. They were in idolatry. And God uses young King Josiah to bring great revival. And how did that happen? The high priest was doing some renovation of the temple. They were doing a little makeover. And then he discovered the word of God somewhere in the temple. 
and he brought it to the king. Say, oh, king, look at what I found, the word of God. And then when Josiah read it, he tore his clothes. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know, right? We lost his word for years and years and years. And then revival came. This is exactly what happened with Ezra and Nehemiah in another book in the Old Testament. Revival. How did that revival come? Well, it says Ezra, who was the number one scribe at that time, teacher of the law, he stood on a giant platform in front of the entire nation, and he read the Bible. And it says he read it from sunrise until noon. That's hours and hours. And people were standing there, men, women, and children. And it says they wept as they heard the word of God. And then what happened? Revival. Do you see that? It's always the recovery of the word of God. You just can't skip over that and go, oh yeah, we're going to share the gospel. Look at what Jesus said. He spent 40 days with them to make sure, do you understand the kingdom of God? Do you understand this gospel? Here are the convincing proofs of my resurrection, the bedrock of the gospel. See, he knew, unless you're convinced of this, unless you're convicted of this, nothing's going to happen. And then they still didn't get it, and he taught them some more. So the word of God, the recovery of God's word is always the prerequisite for revival. Revival, a widespread coming to faith, it always begins when people begin to understand, oh yeah, that's what God meant by the gospel. That, that's what he's trying to say through the word of God. You know, last night we had a good community group and I was talking to this one brother and we were talking about different revivals. Um, I forgot why, but we were just talking about revivals and we talked about how revival, if you look at church history, never once came upon a cult, never. A true revival that brought salvation and transformation to entire societies. It never came upon a cult. God never brought revival upon a group of believers or people who believed heretical things. Never. Whenever you see a true move of God in church history, they always believed in the true gospel and they always believed that the Bible was the word of God. Now, they might have disagreed on some of the minute details, but overall, that's what they always believed and true revival came. God never brought revival upon a heretical group. So God will only use a church that believes and is committed in the true gospel. And so again, what did the early church have that brought such a great witness? They believed in the gospel. They believed in it. They were convicted of it. And so why? Why is this a prerequisite for revival? Because that's where the power is. Paul made it clear, Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So you can even add there the true gospel. For I am not ashamed of the true gospel, for it is the power of God. See, it's not a false gospel. It's not a different gospel. It's the one true gospel. So the power of God is in the good news that Jesus saves sinners. And I want to be clear about who sinners are. Sinners are all of us, all humanity, who have sinned and now are condemned to hell under God's wrath. I know that is not politically correct, but that is the message of the gospel. Every single human being that has ever lived has sinned and has been condemned to hell under God's wrath, and yet in love, because God did not want to send anybody to hell, sent Jesus Christ to take their place. He was condemned in our place. He died and then rose again in our place. And now everyone who repents and believes in that gospel is saved. It's not automatic heaven for all, but it's those who repent and believe in that gospel. They are saved, forgiven, adopted, gifted, commissioned, 
sent into the world as ambassadors. So that's the gospel. But that's not all. But everything your soul needs, like acceptance, validation. We all live lives trying to be validated, right? You want to be validated by your parents, your boss, your professors. You want to get enough good grades to get validated by your future grad school. I mean, you want to be validated, I know. But now the gospel also says, not only are we saved, but we are accepted and validated in Christ. By simply believing in this gospel, you now have everything your soul needs. So this is the gospel. Okay, do you believe in that? Are you convinced of that? But that's not all. But the gospel is not only about individuals being saved and going to heaven, but it's also the power of God to restore entire communities, entire cities, and entire nations, in fact. Back to what God intended it to be. Okay, God's original design. The gospel is what will do that. This is a big statement, but the gospel is the only thing that has brought human flourishing, true human flourishing, in the last 2,000 years. Okay, some of you guys don't understand that. You don't believe that, but that's the fact. I know that's a very big statement. Okay, that needs explanation. We don't have time for that today. But that is a fact. I mean, just think about this. But at a very minimum, okay, what is our fundamental problem? Our fundamental problem is not that we don't have enough education. We don't have enough information. We live in the information age. You can look anything up on the Internet. In a split second, you could have it at your fingertips. That is not our problem. Our problem is that, that we don't have enough technological advances. That is not our problem. What is our fundamental problem? It's the human heart, right? It's our human nature. Okay, let me make it even more real right now. Think about the top three things in your life that are going to destroy you. Okay, you know these are destructive in my life. They're no good. Now, let me ask you, can you right now today just stop doing them? Just stop it. Those top three things that you know are destructive in your life, just stop it right now. Impossible. You cannot do it. I cannot do it. See, that is the fundamental problem that we all have. I mean, you can have as many degrees as a thermometer, and it doesn't matter. Okay, that's not, that's not for me. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. You could be the most educated person on this planet. It doesn't matter. You cannot control your own nature. You will destroy your own life. Humanity has always done that for the last 2,000 years. And yes, advances in science, medicine, technology, they're wonderful. Yeah, I've been very blessed by a lot of that. And yet, none of that has touched the fundamental problem in my heart. But what can, right? What can solve that? The gospel. That's it. That is the only solution to our fundamental problem. So let me ask you again, are you clear on that? When you think about the gospel, are you clear? Are you convinced in your heart? This is it. This is the only solution I have to the deepest problem in my life and everyone else around me and this entire society. In fact, the entire world. Is this it? Are you convinced it's the only hope humanity has? And I'm not just talking about the power of the gospel, but I'm talking about conviction in its truth claims. Are you convinced that this is the ultimate truth about who we are and what this world needs. Okay, are you convinced that Jesus really rose from the dead? Okay, that's the central claim of the gospel. Are you convinced of that? Again, go back to Acts 1 verse 3. Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many what? Proofs. Okay, he didn't mess around. He rose again from the dead and he's like, come here, you guys. I'm going to spend 40 days. I'm going to prove to you I was dead. I came back to life. You need to be convinced of this. 
You know, there are only four world religions that were founded by persons, not just philosophies. There are many religions, but only four that were founded by actual historical persons. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, five if you include Mormonism. Mormonism is a cult of Christianity, so I don't count it. But there are four or five. And out of those five, only Christianity is based on a historical event. Yet all these other religions founded by these historical figures, they were all founded by these people having visions, experiences, some enlightened idea that they discovered as they journeyed through life. That's how all these religions were founded. But only Christianity was based on a historical, literal event. I'm talking about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what the Bible says. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, if that didn't happen, we are to be pitied more than all people. You're, you're wasting your time if this historical thing did not happen. And why is that important? Why is that so vital to knowing the truth of the gospel? Because if your faith is founded on some historical person that you never met, having some vision or dream, okay, I have dreams all the time. I had a crazy dream last night. Okay, but, but if it's just based on some crazy dream, how do you know if that happened or not? How do you know if that was true or not? Okay, who's to know if Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, was truly enlightened and reached Nirvana? I mean, how do you know that? How do you know if the angel Gabriel really appeared to Muhammad and gave him the real verses of the word of God in the Quran? How do you know that? How do you know if an angel appeared to Joseph Smith in the 1800s and gave him a, the, the true revelation of God, the Book of Mormon? How do you know that? I, I don't know. Okay, did that stuff really happen? I don't know. You can never verify those things. But if Christianity was founded on a historical event, because something actually happened in space and time, it actually happened, then you know what? You can know. Okay, you're not going to know in the same way you know something in a laboratory. But most things we know, we didn't know because of a laboratory. Okay, how do you know the Roman Empire existed? How do you know Julius Caesar ex- existed? Well, you look for evidence, historical evidence. So you can know if Jesus rose from the dead or not. It was a historical event. Your faith is not based on someone's personal experience, but on a historical event. So do you know that? Like Jesus, when he appeared to the disciples, he gave many proofs of his resurrection, it says. I believe that was a key factor of why they were such powerful witnesses. Do you know the arguments for the resurrection? Do you know the arguments from Bible prophecy that the resurrection had to happen? Do you know the arguments from the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, do you know the medical, sociological, the transformed lives arguments? Do you know all these arguments? And I'm not talking about knowing these arguments so you can share it to your non-Christian friend. I mean, you can do that. But I'm talking about knowing them for yourself so that you yourself are convinced. You know what? Maybe when I was growing up, I heard these things. I wasn't sure. But now I know. I am convinced. I've looked into it myself. Like Luke told Theophilus, these events I have looked into myself, and now I give them to you, Theophilus. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Okay, have you looked into it yourself? Are you convinced that Jesus, yes, rose from the dead? And if that really happened, the only one who ever did that, he died and raised himself back to life. If that happened, oh my goodness, and what does that mean? That changes everything, right? It changes everything. So the early Christians were convinced of Jesus' resurrection. They knew the gospel is true. Again, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, many evidences. 
you know, I used to spend a lot of time on the college campuses, not so much anymore, um, but I used to go there all the time because I was a college pastor, uh, sharing my faith, passing out pamphlets, trying to talk to people about Jesus. And I used to go out with, you know, teams of people, so it wasn't just me. But I remember as I kept doing that, you know what I began to realize over time, especially as I took out, uh, you know, younger students to evangelize with me? It's not the training that makes the key difference in sharing your faith. I mean, training is important. Don't get me wrong. And I want to do training in our church too. But that's not the most important thing. But the most important thing when you go out to share your faith is the level of conviction you have. It is. It is. I've seen people just trained up to their eyeballs, right? And then they go out there and they're just like a mouse, right? They don't talk to anybody. They don't want to confront anyone. They don't want to share their faith. It's not the training. And then there are new believers who got no training, but they're just excited about their faith. Why? Because they know Jesus is real. He saved me. I'm convinced of this. And boom, they're just sharing the gospel with everybody, right? And so I realized over time, you know, training is important, but that's not the key factor. It is your level of conviction that the gospel is absolutely true. And it is true in my life, and it is true, in fact, in the entire world. It is true. And it is the answer. Again, this is why new believers are oftentimes far more effective witnesses than believers who have gone to church for many years. It's because for the new believer, it's fresh, right? The gospel is the power of God. I experienced that last month. It is fresh. And so they are sharing. They are great and powerful witnesses. You know what this is kind of like? This is the picture I got. But it's kind of like eating Thanksgiving dinner. And during that dinner, you just heard right beforehand that they are passing out 70-inch TVs for free in this crazy Black Friday deal. And so you know, right? You heard that. You believe it. You know this is true. They are giving away free 70-inch flat-screen TVs. You're convinced of it. And so during that dinner, are you going to be worried about technique? Oh, how am I going to share, right? I mean, what are the first steps? I mean, you don't even think about that. Before you even think about that, you're already sharing with your family. Hey, there are free TVs, right? We're going right after dinner, right? You're just sharing. Why? Because you're convinced of it. You know it. This news is too good to hold back. So that is the way we should be with the gospel. So this is the first ingredient in being a powerful witness, is are you convicted in the truth of the gospel? Okay, what does it mean to you even today? You know, we're going to wrap it up here, and we're going to look at baptism in the Spirit next week. But before we close, I really want to encourage you guys to go back to when you first believed and dig up those convictions you had. Dig up those passions you used to have. You know, the picture I get is in Genesis 26, Isaac digging up the wells. I've, I've shared this before, but I remember first hearing a teaching on this by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And since that time, I've actually shared it a few times here at this church. But in Genesis 26, Isaac took his family, his servants, his livestock, his possessions, everything he had, and he left his homeland. And he was journeying, and then he went to this place called the Valley of Gerar. And his grandfather, Abraham, was there many, many years ago. And so he found this one well that Abraham, his grandfather, had made. And he went there and he looked and it was all plugged up. And so why was he looking for that well? Why was he looking for water? Well, it wasn't a hobby, right? He wasn't trying to set up a business, a well business. But the reason why is because he needed water to live, right? He needed this. And so he was looking for that well that his grandfather had made. And when he found it, he was glad, but it was all plugged up. But that's the way it is with the gospel, 
Okay, you don't just do this because you're a Christian and I'm yelling at you today, go be witnesses. But the reason why you need the gospel is because you need it to live. It's like living water. And yet for many of you, you go back there, but it's all plugged up. What I mean is it's all covered up. Okay, with wrong ideas, false beliefs that have built up over time. Maybe there's a lot of busyness and clutter in your life. And so now it's way, way down, low in your life, buried under a lot of other things. And so it's all covered up. And so what we need to do is you need to go back, I need to go back, and we need to dig up those old convictions, right? Dig up those first beliefs you had. So what were those first convictions? Okay, what I'm talking about is when you first came to faith, what made you excited about Jesus? Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, what got you fired up? Okay, was it intimacy with Christ? Was it knowing that all your sins, as great as they are, they are all wiped away, they're all forgiven? Okay, what was it? Was it acceptance and love from God, not based on anything you do, not on your performance, but what Jesus did? How can that be? Okay, maybe you were surprised by that when you first came to faith. Okay, well, what was it? What were the first convictions and the first passions you had? Again, go back there. Dig them up. Dig them up. Be convicted again. You know, I close with this, but I remember hearing someone say, this was actually a great historian on revival, but he said, a theological awakening always precedes a spiritual awakening. Okay, you need a theological awakening. Okay, you need to go back and dig up that fresh gospel again. Okay, that living water is there, but you need to dig it up. Amen? Okay, let's come before the Lord. Father God, we just want to come before you today, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that the truth is not far off, but the Bible says it is as close as your mouth. You have put it in our mouths and in our hearts. And so, Lord God, most of us here, I believe, we know the gospel. Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, died for our sins, and rose again. Okay, most of us know that. But Lord Jesus, I pray that we would recover it again in a fresh way. Just like the early disciples who spent 40 days with you, Lord, as you taught them carefully, once again, the truths about the kingdom of God giving them many proofs of your resurrection. In other words, convincing them once again of the gospel. So Lord God, that's what we need. We're not going to be witnesses without it. Yes, training is important. Techniques can be helpful. But way more than that, Lord, what we need is we need a fresh uncovering of the truth of the gospel, Lord, in our lives. So, Lord God, give us that kind of revival of theology, revival of the word of God in our lives. And next week, as we look at the baptism of the spirit, as those two things combine together, Lord, I have no doubt we are going to be witnesses of you in this city. We will be witnesses. So, Lord, we thank you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.